Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest edition of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in crime or in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hey, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you on this hot and sweltering day all over the world. I don't think it matters where you are. It's probably hot. Um, Today, we have a really accomplished guest that I'm really thrilled to have. Jillian Tett is the chairperson of the editorial board and editor-at-large in the U.S. for the Financial Times. She's perhaps best known for predicting the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Her best-selling book, Fool's Gold, was one of the definitive books on the crash. And if you really want to get into the crash, it is a great book to read. Extraordinarily well-written and some great insights from someone who saw it coming, sort of. And she also, and this will be part of the topic of today's discussion, has a PhD in social anthropology from the University of Cambridge, where she studied marriage rituals in Tajikistan. Her work for the FT is taken around the world from Brussels to Tokyo. She was four years behind me in Tokyo, and we can maybe touch on that at some point. Um, to Moscow, to New York, she's won numerous awards. If you look at her Wikipedia page, there's like a half a page of awards that she's won as a journalist. She's a columnist and business journalist of the year for the British Press Awards. And we will be talking to her about her latest book, Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain business and life. Gillian, welcome. Well, thank you very much indeed. And I noticed you couldn't help but laugh at the idea that I once studied Tajik wedding rituals, which, you know, I understand completely because it seems very disconnected to the world of business and finance or policymaking in the West. But actually, you know, I think it's not that disconnected at all. Mm. And we'll get into that because that's how you open your book. You open your latest book with this story of you and a fellow journalist trapped in a hotel in the middle of a civil war and the discussion of what the experts missed when they were looking at the breakup for the Soviet Union. And so bring us into that world of the Tajikistan marriage rituals and what experts miss by laughing when they when we bring that up. Well, the reason I might start my book with that story about being in the Tajik civil war is because Another journalist colleague did say to me when they found out I was an anthropologist, you know, what the hell is the point of anthropology? That sounds completely irrelevant. Um, and that's not surprising because that's what many people ask. Um, people think that anthropologists are a bit like the academic version of Indiana Jones in the sense of, you know, wacky, weird people who go off to wacky, weird places and come back with amazing photographs and ritual artifacts and souvenirs and great stories but nothing that's very useful to make sense of the modern world. And much of my life, I've been trying to say that that's simply not true. Humans are humans in whatever context we find them, whether that's in Wagadougou or on Wall Street or in the city of London. 
Um, and we're all shaped by our desire to be part of a social network, um, to have status, our hope that we can reproduce our norms and values over time, the fact we use rituals and symbols to try and do that. And perhaps most importantly, that we all tend to make mistakes, that the way we think and navigate the world is natural and inevitable, and that everyone else should kind of think like us. And that that is the you know only way that's really proper and right to think. Um, the reality is that that's never true. Um, our assumptions are always changing subtly, but they're never shared by everyone else. And trying to think yourself into the mind of people who seem alien and different, which is what anthropologists basically do, um, is not just useful to make sense of other people, but also to make sense of yourself. Because the Chinese have this great proverb that a fish can't see water. None of us can see the assumptions that shape us unless we jump out the fishbowl, go swim with other fish and look back. And when we do, we can see not just the things that we like to notice about our lives and talk about, um, but the things we don't, um, all the assumptions that shape us. And if we ignore those half-hidden or completely hidden assumptions, um, we don't understand how our world really works and we can make some really dumb mistakes. Oh connect that to predictions of how the Soviet Union was going to break up and what the study of marriage rituals proved them wrong on. <laughs> what did they well, miss? Well, very briefly, um, when I went to the Tajikistan in the last few years of the Soviet um, Union, um, there was a dominant assumption in the world of Central Asian studies, which I had been in, in the academic sphere, that Islam and communism were diametrically opposed and that therefore places like Tajikistan, which were both Muslim and Soviet, must be in a state of total internal tension, and that they would be the main place that posed a challenge to Moscow and caused a breakup of the Soviet Union. The CIA used to talk about the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union, meaning the Central Asian areas, and assume that the revolution against the Soviet regime would start there first. So I turned up in my area where I was doing fieldwork research in the village in the mountains with that mental framework, um, that bird's eye view, um, and discovered what many anthropologists discover when they go somewhere and immerse themselves in another culture and try to see, see it through their eyes, not your own eyes, and use a worm's eye view, that my prior assumptions were completely wrong. Um, in fact, on the ground, there was a pattern of accommodation, not conflict, because takes us out of a split between public and private space and the space for Soviet male and the private space was female and Muslim. And so they compartmentalised their world a lot and reduced the conflict. Now, that's a kind of, you know, sub-story, which is really only of interest to people who are anthropologists or Soviet experts um, and others. But it had a great relevance in the um, Soviet period from a geopolitical perspective, you know, if more people in the foreign policy community had tried to use a worm's eye view and think themselves into the mind of the Tajiks, not apply Western assumptions at the time, they would have seen that, in fact, a revolution wasn't going to happen in Central Asia. It happened in the Baltic Republics first. Um, but the big point that matters to business and finance is that in almost any context, if you go into a situation assuming that your perspective is correct and the bird's eye views tell you everything, you can often fall flat on your face. Well, the other vignette that you bring up early in the book is the uh, 
picturing yourself in France. You're in Nice. It's 2006. There's a securitization conference that you're showing up, and people are speaking this strange language, and you're there going, ha, let me put my anthropologist hat on. Tell us a little bit about how that led to your concerns but might what it might happen and unfold in 2007 and 2008 when we hit the financial crisis well when people say to me what's the point of studying tajik wedding rituals um i often answer half jokingly well it helped me predict the financial crisis and it's true because um when i moved on from my career from academia became a journalist was covering finance. Um, I took over in 2005 what was a desk that was called the Capital Markets Team at the FT. And one of the first things I did was go back down to an investment banking conference in Nice. And investment banking conferences fulfill the same social function as Tajik weddings, <laughs> in the sense that they pu- uh, pull together a scattered tribe, um, have all kinds of formal and informal rituals Um, which in the case of investment banking conferences are things like PowerPoint presentations or golf tours or dinners. But there are all kinds of rituals that both allow people to reflect and reaffirm their social networks, but also, more importantly, reflect and reaffirm and reproduce a shared worldview. Um, And, you know, Tajik Weddings did that by reflecting and reaffirming this idea of a split between public and private space. Um, the investment banking conference I saw was reflecting and reaffirming a set of ideas around the creation of credit derivatives and complex financial innovations. And like any professional group, the bankers had a strong creation mythology that they used to justify what they were doing. You know, all professional groups do, including journalists. And like any creation mythology, this was riddled with contradictions that the financiers couldn't see because they were not anthropologists who were used to challenging their worldview and they operated in such a tribal network that there were very few outsiders challenging them. But the contradictions included things like the idea that all these innovations were supposed to distribute risk in the system and lower the risk in the system. And in fact, they were creating new risks because the methods of distributing the risk were so opaque that no one had a clue what was actually going on or the contradiction that the financiers claimed the whole point of innovation was to serve human beings and make consumers essentially enjoy the benefits of innovation. And they talked a lot about that. But when you looked at their PowerPoint slides, that ritual, there weren't any faces on the PowerPoints at all. It was all Greek letters and algorithms and charts. And you can say, as the bankers did, well, that's just kind of normal. Or you can say, well, that kind of idea of what was normal for a PowerPoint reflects the fact that the financiers were so detached from the end users, the consumers for all their subprime mortgage CDOs, that they couldn't see that the end users were not behaving as the models implied they should behave. Um, There's a great scene in the big short movie where a hedge fund trader goes and meets a lap dancer who's taken out subprime mortgages. And the hedge fund traders are shocked by what she's doing with them. And the thing that's shocking is not that they were shocked. The thing that's shocking is that very few people inside the Fed or investment banks or hedge funds were actually going out and meeting real-life subprime mortgage borrowers on the ground and doing one-on-one anthropology and looking at their lives and worlds bottom-up and trying to think themselves into their mindset and seeing how their beautifully crafted algorithms simply weren't reflecting what was happening on the ground. Um, 
but you know, it, unless you looked at the kind of ritualistic element of how bankers talked about their world, um, you couldn't see their point of view and how cut off they were and all the contradictions. So, you know, I came back from that investment banking conference, having tried to deconstruct the investment banking rituals in the same way that I deconstructed Tajik weddings and kind of had a holy shit moment where I could see that actually there were really big tensions building in finance and problems, um, which I didn't know how big the financial crisis would be, but at the time I could see were likely to lead to some kind of shock in the future. I love it. You also, in your book, and I like the way you, you go back and you, and you play with the origin of words. And uh, one in particular word is the word company. So you went back and you described that as coming from campagno, which I guess is Italian for basically we're going to have a meal break bread together. Yeah. The idea that an organization is, in essence, a tribe of people, an organization. And that, in essence, each organization is in some way, shape, or form shaped by its culture. You might describe it as a tribe or a community. Um, I'm wondering, when you, when you take that lens and you're reporting on businesses, how does that shift or change when you go into, let's take a BP, or you go into an ExxonMobil, and you know, you've got that anthropological view on, and part of it is that I know you've interviewed the CEO of BP, and we had one of the new board members of ExxonMobil on recently. Mm. So um, I'm curious that as a reporter, you go in, you're looking at it from the anthropological point of view. What do you observe that you think is well, different? Compagno actually means with bread, and that's where the roots of the word company come from, because, you know, companies started life as groups of people who sat and ate together and did business. Um, and today it's often seen as being balance sheets and org charts or economic models. Um, and, you know, the canteen, the element of eating bread together, is seen as being simply an irrelevance or something that, you know, it's a cost centre. Um, and it's not, you know, the idea of humans interacting is crucial, um, even if it's just interacting on Zoom. And if you don't look at the aspect of human interaction and human tribalism and rituals, you know, you often miss some of the incentives that are driving the organisation and means that it doesn't actually operate often as the org chart might suggest it should do. Um, you know, one example of that was during the financial crisis. Um, you know, the risk management departments of big banks have these wonderful systems which were supposed to monitor risks across the organization um, and which relied on the idea that every trading desk or every banking desk would report up what it was doing upwards to the risk management department without recognizing that the social hierarchy of status inside banks meant that the risk managers were often lower status um, than the actual high revenue producing traders without seeing that actually if you his desks pitted against each other in this tribal fashion because you had an eat what you can kill conversation practice inside investment banks they didn't have any incentive to tell each other what they were doing because they were competing with each other um, quite the contrary um, without you wouldn't often didn't see that the risk management departments themselves were riddled with competing silos because you know, to take the case of UBS, one big bank I looked at, it had three risk management departments, one looking at liquidity risk, one looking at credit risk, and one looking at operational risk, and they were kind of competing with each other. So human structures and patterns matter. And in the case of BP, um, what happened there um, was that 
you know, inside most fossil fuel companies, you've had a tremendous sense of tribalism linked to people working in the fossil fuel world, um, which meant that they thought they were heroes and wildly successful and capitalist, and that the irritating people called, you know, NGOs and activists who would turn up at their climate, at their annual general meetings, were kind of a different tribe and sort of the enemy. And there was an ingrained instinct on the part of most, um, you know, fossil fuel, oil and gas sector leaders to either dismiss what they had to say or just not listen or talk to them. Um, and that was as much out of tribal instincts as anything else. Um, the story I tell in my book is of um, the BP executive who actually said, you know what, I think we should listen and was very struck at one of the AGM meetings by the fact that um, one of the activists seemed to be talking quite a lot of sense. So he summoned them in, um, tried to listen to what they were saying with you know, fresh eyes, doing one-on-one anthropology, and tried to see the world through their eyes. Um, and it would be wrong to say that that caused a complete conversion of BP, but it certainly helped him to engage in quite a significant reset um, that's still going on today. Um, I'll give you one other example of the kind of, you know, element of human incentives that drive this kind of stuff. I happen to know one of the big C3 members on another very big American oil and gas company um, who tells me that the big moment of shock for him that enabled him to start to embrace climate change issues rather than fight it instinctively was when he discovered that his own grandkids were too embarrassed by what he did to tell their girlfriends and boyfriends his job title and until that point this happened about three or four years ago until that point this individual had assumed that he was a hero in everyone's eyes because in the texan town where he operates he is a hero or was a hero um and suddenly realizing that his own grandkids had gone from seeing him as a hero to a zero made him realize that the climate was changing and that's a kind of shift that you can't see in an economic model financial model or the org chart of the company, but it's a kind of social pattern and change that matters enormously. Um, I see that Raj wants to come in, and I've talked far well, too much. I'd love to hear what you've got to say on all that. Yeah, I know so many threads there. So the one immediate one from what you just said is, uh, given that people are immersed in their own worldviews, and uh, as you said, fish are the last to discover water and so forth, how do we awaken leaders that are inside these systems? How do we get them to shift their perspective to see things in a different way? That's in a, in a meta level, that's a challenge of conscious capitalism as well. How do we take people who are embedded in the sort of homo economicus profit maximization story about the world and about human behavior and get them to see that actually it is deeply flawed and they need to think about it in a different way? Is it simply holding up the mirror to them and showing them the consequences of their actions? Is it, of course, writing books as you do, speaking, uh, you know, at TED Talks and so forth? But is there any other way to get awakening? You know, that's what I think to me is the biggest challenge of our time. There are so many people who are kind of in that, you know, they're just caught in that web. And it's hard for them to see anything different. Well, I'd say basically fear and greed are the two things to think about. Um, on the fear side, um, you know, one of the things that's fascinating in the whole world of successful business is that, you know, I think there's three buckets of investors today looking at ESG and sustainability. There is a small minority who want to actively change the world because they think it's a good thing to do, you know, and God bless them. They're fantastic. 
Um, that is, those are the people who are driving impact investing. Um, and they tend to be benevolent individuals or church groups or Scandinavian pension funds. Um, that group's not expanding, but that's, you know, the impact investors. And there's a bigger group who want to avoid doing harm to the world because it gives them a guilty conscience. Um, they don't necessarily want to change the world, but they want to at least not do harm. And those are kind of the responsible investment group who are screening out bad assets and stuff. But the biggest group today are the people who want to avoid doing harm to themselves and who treat ESG and sustainability as a new tool of risk management. Because they've realized that actually, if they ignore ESG issues, they can lose their investors, lose their customers, lose their employees, um, have regulatory problems, or face big reputational scandals. Um, whether that's because of slavery in their supply chains, or the fact they're polluting something, or because of hashtag me too type problems inside their own company. And, you know, when you have things like the hashtag movement toppling a bunch of CEOs, um, or when you have people pointing to the potential for stranded assets inside portfolios, you get the fear factor. And that's very, very powerful right now in terms of trying to get people to think beyond the box. Or the metaphor I often use, which is linked to anthropology, um, when you're trying to get people to realize that tunnel vision of the sort espoused by Milton Friedman is limited and dangerous and get them to embrace lateral vision instead, um, you know, fear goes a long way. And the other thing that's driving the fear factor right now is an era of radical transparency. You know, Milton Friedman, I think, could not have developed his shareholder first or shareholder only ideas um, today because he was a product of his time. And his time in the post-war mid 20th century was a time of opacity about what companies were doing. You just had quarterly shareholder reports and a time when people trusted government to get stuff done. Um, and thought that you could outsource all the really difficult decisions in life around climate and social responsibility to government. Um, today, trust in government has collapsed, but more importantly, um, transparency has exploded. So when you look at what someone like the Yale University um, Business School have done with their website monitoring what companies are doing in relation to Russia following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, that was launched you know, pretty much the day after the invasion, if you look at what's happened there, you can see the fear factor because by launching suddenly transparency in a radical real-time way, um, not only did you give activists something to, to use to put pressure on companies, but you put the fear of God into many company boards as well. Um, and, you know, many companies tried to ignore that transparency initially. Um, but when people like Nestle were told that they were going to be hacked by activists if they didn't actually respond using that data, that tends to force the C-suite to use lateral vision and look differently at how they're operating. So that's one set of complexes. I mean, you can also apply to their greed and say, if you start using lateral vision, you might see a whole bunch of new business opportunities. You might get better employees. You might get better investors. Um, your own kids might talk to you more easily over the dinner table, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think at the moment, it's probably fear that's driving it rather than greed. Well, I'm also interested as an academic and going back to your days at Cambridge and you're getting that degree in academic in anthropology and your decision at that point to not go into academia, but to go into the world of practice. Could you talk about that? And I think now you play a very valuable role kind of as a boundary spanner, bringing the knowledge and insight and wisdom of cultural anthropology into different domains. 
But what was your uh, thinking at that time? Why did you not pursue the academic path? Um, well, I love anthropology. I love the idea of an anthropology. I think it's an incredibly potent framework to, to use to look at the world um, that goes unrecognized. Um, but I have to admit, I don't like the way that a lot of anthropology departments in academia are set up um, because ironically for a discipline that's dedicated to exposing tribalism and others, it can be very tribal and inward looking itself. Um, and anthropologists tend to be often quite badly placed to hustle to get their ideas into the mainstream or influence policymaking, um, partly because of the way that the discipline is structured. You know, what is both a blessing um, and one of the most attractive features of the discipline is also its curse. And anthropologists tend to be very good at hiding in the bushes and observing others. They are trained to be very humble. Um, they're trained to be wary of imposing their worldview on others and recognizing that other people have valid points of view. They tend to be very cynical about money and power, you know, all of which makes them often very charming and insightful people, but absolutely rubbish at hustling inside university systems or anywhere else to get their mm. ideas out. Um, and they're often very resentful and suspicious of people who are trying to work in the non-academic world and do that. Um, and just are trained to see life in shades of grey, which is very accurate because life is shades of grey, but it's also rubbish if you're trying to communicate because most communication um, platforms require black and white. So I kind of got very frustrated by all that and so went into journalism, which is another way of trying to look at what people do. Um, I hope one day to try and bridge the two and I'm sort of wrote the book to try and do that because I do love anthropology, but it's um, tough to use the academic platform today to get your ideas out. And it's not just about anthropology. I mean, as you know, Raj, um, the structure of the academic ritualistic process for career advancement, you know, writing papers, staying in your lane, um, all of that kind of stuff, you know, tenure track, um, you know, doesn't work very easily with getting ideas out into the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I experienced that even in a business school context where there were, uh, you know, people frowned on writing for the Wall Street Journal, for example. It's like, why, you know, that's academic suicide. <laughs> why are you, you know, you're not a journalist, you're a, uh, supposed to be a scholar, you know, that kind of thing. So the, the lack of engagement with the real world, I think, is an issue across uh, many disciplines, uh, definitely in the in the uh, in the business schools, uh, it's it's a critical issue because so much of what we are teaching is still rooted in the old paradigm, and we're not connecting to what the world really needs. So, uh, mm. so I really applaud the uh, you know the, the the path that you've taken, you know, to bring that well, bring you. that knowledge into the world uh, without necessarily being part of it. I was laughing because it's a joke on business school campuses that management departments are always the worst managed there are yeah yeah anthropology departments can be among the most tribal um yeah, they, exactly. oh boy let's <laughs> let's not get into a war on this one you might see some, uh, <laughs> really hairy stories but um you know i want to go back a little bit to the esg world just for a moment because you did um push and and have created the moral money um column newsletter area within the ft and at the same time, you know, you said your initial, and I love this, your initial reaction to ESG was that ESG stood for, make sure I get this right, eye roll, sneer, and groan. So your initial reaction was, well, that's, that's ESG, and 
the idea, quote unquote, that banks were selling ESG products seemed a little like priests in the medieval Catholic Church selling indulgences or tokens that were supposed to offset sins for themselves and others. And so you sort of started in a interesting place. <laughs> But you've evolved a little in your thinking. What's shifted for you? Well, the reason that I sort of initially ignored ESG and, you know, regarded it very very cynically and joked that it stood for eye roll, sneer and groan was because I, like most mainstream journalists, did think that the whole sector was simply, you know, a world of corporate PR spin. Um, And it often is. And it often still is. Um, You know, the indulgences um, metaphor is often still that. Um, but what happened to me was in about 2017, 2018, as I was routinely deleting all these emails from public relations executives about ESG, um, I suddenly sort of thought, well, hang on a sec, all these emails have increased dramatically. You know, there's a ritualistic signaling here. Um, this is symbolic of something happening. And what is happening? I can't just assume that as a journalist, I know what's happening. I know that it's, it's, you know, it's all BS. I need to go and work out what's driving this in their minds. And when I went and spoke to a series of business executives um, and tried to listen without preconception or judgment to what was going on, I realized that there was kind of a three-part shift going on in that you had, you know, companies realizing they needed to do more than just talk about profit. They needed to talk about purpose as well and take a sort of lateral vision, not tunnel vision. Um, and you had financiers realizing that they had to show how the money they were making impacted the world and vice versa. And then you had governments that were running out of money themselves and didn't have the resources to do the developmental projects they wanted um, and needed to use the private sector to get involved to do the development. Those three things were coming together and impacting how people looked at environmental and social and governance issues. And as I said earlier, they were driven by a desire to you know, sometimes change the world, sometimes do no harm to the world, and almost always do no harm to themselves. So there was a bigger zeitgeist shift going on. Um, or another way of saying it was that a lot of in- investors were realizing instinctively that they had to move from just tunnel vision to lateral vision about how they looked at the world. And that reflects the fact that, you know, the world had become deeply unpredictable and volatile. And all of the things that were basically excluded from the tunnel vision tools that executives had traditionally used to make sense of the world, like economic balance sheets or sorry, economic models or balance sheets, all of the things that had been previously excluded or viewed as externalities or put into the footnotes were suddenly becoming really important, um, like the environment, like gender relations with hashtag me too, like medical risk in COVID. And so you couldn't just use narrow balance sheets or economic models to navigate. You had to take a much bigger view. And so that, again, is part of this ESG became tool of risk management. Um, and you had to just take a more holistic vision on where the world was going. Now, you could say that we've had the first wave of backlash come on pretty strong around ESG, right? We've had... You know, we can go to the HSBC analyst who, you know, came out and said, we don't need to worry about this, recently fired from his job. We've had a person leaving BlackRock talking about it. Um, there's been a lot of pushback. And um, and I'm curious, is this, is the, is the peak gone or is this part of uh, the growth cycle of a good idea? <laughs> Um, it doesn't surprise me as a backlash because history is going pendulum swings and you know every dialectic has a or the Hegelian dialectic, every thesis has an antithesis. 
and hopefully then creates a synthesis. So it doesn't surprise me. Um, and in many ways, I think it's justified because a lot of the frameworks that were developed in the first wave of realizing that you need to have lateral vision on business um, are troubled. You know, SG metrics are often troubled. Um, and anyone who's doing ESG needs to recognize that E and S involves trade-offs and they're not easy to define or measure, um, but they're inevitable. But although we have a backlash emerging now, um, I don't think we're going back to Milton Friedman. Um, I feel that very strongly that in an era of radical transparency, an era of a loss of faith in government and the fact that people are looking to business to get involved in fixing wider problems, in an era where millennials have very different attitudes to what business and society should be doing in terms of the social compact, all of those um, shifts means we're heading to something which is not the cookie cutter ESG we saw two or three years ago necessarily, but also not Milton Friedman. And as I don't know, uh, we're groping towards it. Um, but I think, you know, whether you want to call it conscious capitalism, um, you know, whether you want to talk about, you know, the reason I called moral money, moral money is because it was a nod to the theory of moral sentiments, which was the other book of Adam Smith's. And, you know, I believe very strongly in the ideas that Adam Smith laid out in his first book that mission drives innovation and growth. Um, but I also think his second book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which argues that you need a social, moral and legal framework to make markets work, is very important too. So I think big picture, we're going from tunnel vision to lateral vision. We're linking the two books of Adam Smith in terms of where a business is going. Um, but exactly what formulation that's going to take, I don't know. Raj, have you got the answer? <laughs> well, I certainly am in violent agreement with you. You know, the, I jokingly say that capitalism had a mother and a father, and they were both Adam Smith. Mm. But the mother energy, in a way, was in moral sentiments about our, you know, human need to care and uh, and for the well-being of each other, and uh, and then the other side was the uh, the sort of uh, drive to be, you know, independent and successful in the world and freedom. Right. So, but but we we ignored that part of it. Everybody talks about wealth of nations. Where do people refer to moral sentiments? And I think that's where economics and capitalism have developed this sort of one pillar only of what it means to be a human being, the homo economicus, you know, which is a stylized universe in and of itself. It's not really real in the world. And hence we've created, just like you talked about with all the financial. Uh, instruments that were being created, you know, it's not rooted in a realistic understanding of human behavior and human need. So I mm. think that's very much the case. Uh, I, I'm interested in uh, your crystal ball today. When you saw the financial crisis unfolding or brewing uh, back in the early 2000s, you know, if you look at the world today, because we've had this big market correction, we've got the hopefully short-term things going on with inflation and other things because of the war and, and the pandemic. But beyond that, do you see systemic challenges here? I mean, when I look at it, I look at the um, extraordinary amount of share buybacks in the last 10, 15 years as a way of propping up, I think, the share prices that are artificially, I think, inflated in that sense. And, and along with that, an underinvestment in the future, where I think 93% of profits were going to share buybacks and dividends uh, in the S&P 500 over a decade. How much are we investing in the future? All these companies are getting hollowed out, it feels. So are we heading for another kind of a crisis because of the way in which things have been run since the last financial crisis? Well, I don't think we're heading for classic, you know, 
replay of the 2008 crisis. I don't think we're heading for the sort of big sort of debt-fueled crisis in exactly the same way. Um, I think we're heading for a slow burn productivity crisis because it's not clear we can actually harness the technology innovations today to actually boost productivity significantly right now. Um, I think we're heading for an inequality crisis and the fact that more and more gains in the economy are concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer. Um, and I think we're also facing debt challenges because debt has risen inexorably um, in the last few years in a way that, you know, tends to get ignored. And um, it, you know, it was ignored because, you know, interest rates and debt servicing costs kept falling the last decade or two. Um, when that now, may now be changing. Um, and there's a wonderful anthropologist, David Graeber, who points out that, you know, historically, whenever you have a situation where no constraint on credit creation, um, when you've had on several times in the past in history, um, you either have safety valves introduced to enable some form of debt restructuring to take place peacefully. Um, you know, Mesopotamia being the classic example where debt was literally wiped off. The slates recording or the clay slates recording debts were literally wiped clean every 30 or 40 years, creating a sort of mass um, amnesty and jubilee, which stopped social explosions. So you either have a safety valve um, or you tend to have implosions. Um, maybe inflation will be a safety valve. Maybe financial oppression will be a safety valve. But um, it's not clear at the moment what's going to get us out of a world where, you know, global leverage, um, i.e. global debt relative to GDP, has tripled since 2000. Um, no one knows how you deal with that. Well, I'm also curious, the, when we started conscious capitalism, we wanted to be, quote unquote, politically neutral. You know, it was about how do you create great businesses? And if you created a lot of great businesses that were thinking already in terms of purpose and stakeholders and culture and leadership, that we would win the battle by example. Who <laughs> were these wonderful companies? They were operating in a different way. They were incredibly profitable. People would see light. Now, it doesn't matter how often we'll show charts that so truly purpose-driven businesses actually have better financial performance, stakeholder capitalism has its longer-term benefits versus short-term, et cetera. We, we seem to still be fighting a bit of a battle um, mm. with the Wall Street people. Now, having said that, we still tried to stay relatively politically neutral. But in the last six months, clearly over in the U.S., where the two of you are based, there's been a lot of talk about woke capitalism. And suddenly, you know, you brought up the inequality issues, Jillian, and the social inequalities, the economic inequalities, the health inequalities, we could go on. And now suddenly it's becoming politicized, you know, to say stakeholder capitalism is means you're woke and you're into woke capitalism. And there's a, a sort of a pushback on that. What's going on there from your point of view? It's becoming very politicized. Um, and I'd say it's being, becoming very politicized by certain groups, um, you know, on the right wing. Um, not necessarily the mainstream of the right wing. Um, you know, you still have people like Glenn Hubbard, um, the dean of Columbia Business School, who's arguing that in many ways the idea of, you know, sustainability is something the businesses should be embracing. Um, you have Hank Paulson, um, former Treasury Secretary, who's trying to promote biodiversity and environmental investing and things like that but on the far right um you know esg has been used as something which is you know very much um worthy of attack and very much a rallying cry in opposition 
in terms of how the Republicans are talking about it. And that's translating into this kind of extraordinary pushback on the legislative front, whether it's you know the Supreme Court curbing the rights of the EPA, whether it's um, in some ways more importantly, um, you know, some of the state legislators like West Virginia or Texas essentially penalizing companies which want to um, use ESG methods for investment. Um, so that's very marked. And I suspect it reflects the tribalism in America. Um, it reflects the fact that you have people who, you know, still like Milton Friedman, um, want to cling to those ideas. But it also reflects the fact that in some ways, some manifestations of ESG that emerged a couple of years ago aren't workable, aren't particularly practical. Um, there are all kinds of hypocrisies and contradictions in the way that ESG has developed that people quite rightly are calling out. Um, so there's a combination of incentives which are not going to just disappear soon. You know, another interesting angle is certainly in the world that I live in, um, where you know we're working with senior executives a lot, and ESG is often seen as sort of a compliance issue from the outside. It's like they're trying to set the bar at a minimum acceptable level of behavior. And in essence, you don't want to be the bad boy in your industry, so you want to make sure you have a decent score. And that's very, very different from the internal dialogue that goes on around what do we do about stakeholders? What do we do about purpose? How can we use those to energize our organization, to create a great place to work, to make sure that we're hiring the best people and attracting the best people? And in a sense, when you start talking about a purpose-driven strategy, which is ultimately where a real purpose-driven company wants to be going, um, they're infusing purpose everywhere in the organization. And the metrics they're gonna be using are sort of much more management accounting kind of metrics to be tracking whether or not they're getting the benefits and achieving the goals that they've set internally to move on that direction. And they often aren't tied to the ESG metrics, which are coming from the outside, being driven sometimes by the money that wants to know, is this company one of those or one of those? Um, I, I'm curious, where do you see that limit of ESG as it starts to move into the business, to an individual business? Does what I say make sense at all to you, or do you see that very differently? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I absolutely, the answer answer, I don't know, because there's a lot to play for right now. Um, you know, the good news is that there's a huge rush to measure, track, monitor, and use transparency tools. Um, and that is going to change things, because the minute someone starts putting a price on carbon, say, into their forward planning and their decision of whether to approve an investment project or not, um, that change things so introducing some of those simple metrics such as the price of carbon into the cfo's office can have a very big um, impact um but it's a mistake to think there's one single metric or, ma or label or magic wand or reporting tool that's going to solve the problem for you because it's really about trying to move from tunnel vision to lateral vision um and you know that's difficult it's a bit like saying you know I want our C-suite to get better at handling anger. I want them to become fitter. You know, the answer is it's important they do because if they don't, there's going to be problems. And they may do for periods of time, but they can't ever relax and assume the job's done forever because the minute you stop trying to, you know, deal with anger or trying to stop being fit, you backslide. No idea what you're talking about, Gillian. No right. idea, personally, no. <laughs> well, on a more personal note, Gillian, one of the things we often ask is, 
What are some of the influences on your life growing up that made this kind of topic of moral money and ESG important? What, what, what are some of the life events that shaped you, that sort of put you in this position where you're playing the role you are? Um, well, I was shaped by great, you know, passion for curiosity and a desire for adventure. That's what made me a journalist. Um, I grew up in a very boring suburban community um, in a wonderful, well, loving family, but quite conservative um, and was, you know, absolutely consumed with a desire to have adventure. Um, I grew up um, in a community which didn't expect girls to do very much in life in terms of careers. And that, you know, made me want to buck the trend. Um, and made me also feel that as a girl, I was always going to be an insider, outsider in whatever career or institution I went into. And that's quite a powerful position to be in. Um, I was, you know, lucky enough to travel quite a bit as a result. And so became passionately curious about other people. Um, and then, like many people, I was always very shaped by, you know, people I mean, had an amazing great aunt who was one of life's original um, World War II babies who had grown up hoarding and recycling everything because she had lived in an era of recycling and rationing, um, particularly rationing, um, and was always struck by the fact that, you know, we became so wasteful and created a throwaway culture in the late latter part of the 20th century um, that in many ways we're going back to teaching when we talk about the sector economy, losing things, trying to be mindful of our footprint of the world and vice versa. In some ways, we're going back to the future and looking back to earlier eras where there wasn't the assumption that economics was a little kind of separate silo of its own or that businesses existed in isolation. There was this idea that companies were companio, about people, and that economics was about household management, which was the original Greek meaning of the word, i.e. the desire to have stewardship. Raj, any last question on your side? Oh, I just want to appreciate Jillian for uh, her perspective and her wisdom and work in the world. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's been a delightful conversation. We've gone for hours uh, plumbing the depths of your uh, your understanding and your, your perspectives on things, but uh, really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you for being with us. And I'd like to thank you, Raj, for what you're doing um, to try and, you know, promote the idea um, in the business world on the basis of your academic research that there's another way of doing business. And also, you know, I'd like to salute you, Timothy, in terms of what you're doing to try and get these ideas out to more people. So thank you both very much indeed. And thanks for having me on the show. Well, thank you very much, Gillian. And thank you to our listeners for joining us this week. And if you enjoyed this week's show on whatever channel you're listening to, feel free to hit the subscribe button. And if you feel like it, please go over to Apple iTunes. And if you want to leave a star rating for us or leave us some comments, we always welcome the feedback. And I want to thank our producers, Tech Sounds, for their help in getting this show out. And Raj? I would like to thank Technological in Monterey, where I'm a professor and the Conscious Enterprise Center. Uh, which is a co-sponsor of this podcast as well. Thank you all. 